In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we're going to be talking about several different topics. We're going to address some updates on the coronavirus. Uh, then we're going to talk about felon disenfranchisement laws. And then end the podcast by a little bit of a deep dive into Joe Biden. Yeah, super exciting episode today. Um, so, yeah, we'll start off with kind of a discussion of the coronavirus because, you know, it's things have gotten crazy at this point. Um, the most recent data we have is that we have 13 or 113,000, almost 114,000 confirmed cases, uh, with a total of almost 4,000 deaths. Um, and in the U S currently we've got 605 confirmed cases. And last week when we attempted to record this episode, um, we only had 71 confirmed cases. So like the fact that in that short time, seven days, it's gone up you know almost tenfold that's freaking scary <laughs> and it and it is concerning because um the cdc recently did release a, a new estimation about the mortality rate and they uh, they actually put the number around 3.4 percent which yeah, is which is higher than um the two uh, percent which was originally recorded so that that is a little bit concerning yeah and at this point like all signs point to, you know, if it keeps on the same trajectory, a lot of people getting the virus. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Michael, you want to talk a little bit about some of the background of the virus? Yeah, let's do that. Um, so this, so you probably have heard at least some of this because unless you've been living under a rock and only listening to the perspectrum as your, as your only way to be aware, um, you know, this has been in the news like crazy, but super Don't important. Don't only listen to us to be aware. Be aware. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're a little I mean, bit focused I think, and siloed. I think, I think we're a great source of information, but mm -hmm. uh, you should be looking at other sources as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It's all about diversity in your, in your sourcing information. Anyway, so this um, virus is a new strain of coronavirus. Um, so there are like six different kinds of coronavirus. Most of them are presented as forms of the common cold. So most of us have had a version of coronavirus. Um, this version, along with uh, SARS and MERS, are all versions of the coronavirus or strains of the coronavirus that uh, can prove deadly. The, the weird thing about this one is that um, it infects a lot more people. So we'll get into that a little bit more. Um, but this strain um, was first first came about in Wuhan, China um, at the end of 2019. So it was like the first confirmed cases were on like the 30, uh, 31st or 30th of 2019. At China at this point, it's at 80,700 cases. So, you know, in a little over two months and a week, um, it spread significantly. Um, and so a lot of the information we have is based off of those cases, but as it spreads, we're, we're hearing more and more. For instance, at this point, Italy has over 9,000 cases and today actually declared like a national quarantine 
which is a super drastic measure. And one thing that's interesting is that uh, Michael had pointed out that this particular version of the coronavirus does spread a lot more. Previous versions of, uh, previous deadly versions of the coronavirus, such as SARS and MERS, as Michael had pointed out, um, those had higher mortality rates among the people that actually got the virus, but they didn't spread as easily as this particular version of it so even though this particular version of it does have a lower mortality rate, um, it could potentially be a lot more devastating on a global scale. Totally. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because so so to put that a little bit in perspective, you know, SARS had a mortality rate of 10 percent and MERS had a mortality rate of 30 percent. But SARS in total has only ever infected 8000 people. So it's killed 770 MERS in total has only ever infected 2,500 people, killing about 100 or about 860. Again, in contrast, this has infected over 13,000 people, and so just the diff. So people are like saying, people are like diving into a lot of kind of false narratives. One of them is, well, this is not as deadly as SARS and MERS. Well, that's true by rate, but by actual count, this is like hundreds of times more deadly. Yeah. And also it's important yeah. to note that there have been there have been a lot of misinformation out there in order to basically try to cover the Trump administration's ass on this mm-hmm. where they've been trying to paint it as basically being no worse than the flu. Like for example, uh, Rush Limbaugh did this whole segment where he was talking about how the all of this attention on coronavirus was a democratic conspiracy to try to hurt President Trump. And he said 98% of people survive coronavirus. Now, at the time, he was using that number because the estimate was 2% mortality rate for the current iteration of the coronavirus. But that was a very misleading way of saying it because... 2% is still a lot when we're talking about thousands and potentially millions of people getting infected by this disease. Um, So he compared it to, like, the flu, which the flu, I believe, has a mortality rate of, like, 0.01% or 0.1%. It's 0.1%, yeah. It's 0.1%, yeah. So that is, like, so 0.1% and compared to, in this case, uh, 3.4%, that is a massive difference. Yeah, it's it's huge. It's thirty four times more deadly than the common <laughs> flu, um, and you know, like that narrative may have worked somewhat when the flu was, you know, infecting a lot more people. But this is getting up there. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so to pr- put the mortality rate in a little bit of perspective, like if you have like a thousand Facebook friends, and and only two and only 25% of them got the virus. Only 250 of your friends got the virus, which could be a low estimate. It's not it's not clear at this point. Um, cuz it's really hard to predict that kind of thing. But if only 250 of your 1000 Facebook friends got the virus at 3.4% mortality rate, 9 of those people would die. Yeah. That's crazy. And mortality rate is different based on age. Uh, mm-hmm. I've seen some estimates that suggest that um, the mortality rate among people like in Michael's and my age group in our twenties mm-hmm. um, is might be might actually be closer to that of uh, the the regular flu. Um, 
But when you get into people that are much older, that are um, uh, of uh, an elderly age, the mortality rate starts to become a lot more devastating. Yeah, yeah. And and some of that may be due to already having compromised health to start with. So yeah. we know people with cardiovascular issues or respiratory issues can have a really hard time with this. Um, so it's it's not clear that it's a perfect correlation with age. But you know, to Nathan's point, for people that are above 80 years old, um, this is a little bit dated data from, from last week, but the mortality rate is 15% for that group. For people from 70 to 79 years old, it's 8%. So like this is a this is so so as I'm thinking about this, you know, I I've talked about this with my brothers a fair amount and you know, we have started to adjust plans and things because you know, even though my brothers are close to my age and at relatively, you know, low risk for you know, a severe case um, or even a deadly case of this disease, you know, we have older parents we all have parents and my parents are a little bit older than the average and so we're really worried that we might accidentally accidentally be infected not know it because it's uh they believe it's infected infectious during the incubation period when you don't have any symptoms um and so we might be might inadvertently infect them so like there's a serious second order impact of contributing to this ep- epidemic that has a really negative impact on older people. Yeah. But fortunately, Michael, we have a very competent presidential administration mm. that is responding to this in ways that should make us all sleep better. Is that correct, Michael? Oh, oh my gosh, yes, definitely. They are so they're not only prepared, but um prepared with like plans and stuff, but prepared with facts. For example, our fearless leader today tweeted, um so last year 37,000 Americans died from common flu. It averages between 27,000 and 70,000 per year. But nothing is shut down. Life and the economy go on. At this point, there are only 546 cases of coronavirus confirmed, 22 deaths. Think about that. Oh, man. I'm, I'm thinking about it. Yeah. And I'm thinking. <laughs> and that's freaking terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And also, let's not forget about the fact that when the World Health Organization released their estimate about the. Um, the global death rate of 3.4%, our fearless leader was on Sean Hannity, and he said, quote, I think the 3.4% is really a false number. Now, this is just my hunch. You know, it's really great that the deadliness of a disease is uh, being determined by the hunch of our president. Well, he's just, he's just a really influential man. Like, like every, like, facts change subject to his will so you know it's just (laughs) (laughs) no and then and that's the crazy thing like the amount of blatant just pretending that trump and his administration have been doing in order to try to to minimize the negative press from this attack is you know astounding but also harmful yeah well, that's all he cares about. He's he cares about ratings. Yeah. Like every time he talks about, um, you know, the about the generals when they come in to talk to him, he's like, "Oh, this is perfect casting. It's perfect casting." <sighs> he doesn't care about the competence of them. He cares about how they look. So there were reports that apparently he didn't want to hire John Bolton initially, not because he was a war hawk and uh, a war criminal that should be in jail. It was mm-hmm. because of his mustache. <laughs> 
To be fair, it's a stupid looking mustache. Who cares? (laughs) But who cares? Yeah, and and that's the thing. So like so basically China in shutting down Wuhan and like taking that really drastic action once they took any action at all basically bought bought the u.s about a month to prepare but even though we had this extra time the u.s was pretty much caught unprepared for this scenario yeah so uh at the time national security advisor john bolton dissolved the nsc's office of global health security and bio defense in may of 2018 and when he did this Real Admiral uh, Timothy Zamer, who was the senior director of the office at the time, he left, um, and he has since not been replaced. So basically, the Trump administration, and this was at the direction of John Bolton, had gotten rid of our pandemic response group, and and then um, the senior director of the office uh, resigned, and none of them have been replaced yet. So... (laughs) So, we didn't have anybody in pandemic response when this happened. But naturally, of course, because, you know, they're they were obviously totally aware that we didn't have an expert. As soon as they figured out that this was coming to the U.S. and was going to be a problem, they put really, really great people in charge of the response. Right, Nathan? Well, you know, you might think that if you were a reasonable person who thinks good of the president and uh, sees the best in people. And if you do, then... I applaud you. I try to see the best in people, too, but that has completely gotten destroyed under the Trump administration because instead of doing that, <laughs> he put Vice President Mike Pence in charge of the response to the coronavirus. Now, the reason why that is incredibly problematic is Mike Pence famously does not believe in science. He doesn't believe in evolution. He famously stood in the House of Representatives when he was uh, when he was a rep and argued for the teaching of intelligent design uh, in schools as actual science. And the reason why it's important uh, to mention that is that when it comes to the science behind how viruses spread, you need to understand or at least accept the fact that evolution is reality because when the way viruses work is they mutate over time because they evolve. And the reason why it's going to be really difficult for us to develop a vaccine for the coronavirus and why there have been so many iterations of the coronavirus in the past is specifically because it mutates very quickly, meaning that a vaccination might not be completely effective because by the time it gets developed, it might have mutated into a strand that does not that is not affected by the actual vaccine. So the person who is in charge of our response to it does not believe in evolution. He's honestly the perfect person in the Trump administration to to do this job because, you know, science is whatever we want it to be. <laughs> and that that you know that can be fit any narrative you want. Yeah. Um so so on on top of all this like again the administration has and through its its um you know propaganda network via Fox News and Sean Hannity and the like have been basically spreading disinformation during a time when information is relatively scarce and we need to prioritize getting good information out there quickly so people can be prepared. This this administration is really not looking out for the citizens in protecting them from 
this virus. Now, the CDC is they're they're doing their job the best they can, but you know there have been reports of you know health officials that you know went to meet Americans coming potentially infected Americans coming back from China without adequate protective gear. Like it's just yeah, it's a scramble effort. It's crazy, but luckily, luckily. Trump is convinced that we're going to have a vaccine for this within, you know, the next three to four minutes, right? So in a meeting last Monday uh, with his task force um, that has been created in order to address coronavirus, uh, which is mainly the head of several uh, pharmaceutical companies, Trump demonstrated just how ignorant he is on everything related to uh, disease prevention, vaccines, and the just like. Just facts in general. Just ignorant yeah. of facts is a good place to start. At one point, he even suggested, well, why don't we just use the flu vaccine to fight against the coronavirus? <laughs> disease is disease, Nathan. And yeah, medicine I mean... is medicine, okay? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a shot, and there's scary chemicals in it, so I'm sure that it's got to do something, right? Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, any any procedure addresses any problem. That's It's just basic medicine. And then beyond that, he couldn't seem to comprehend that there is a process in developing a vaccine that involves making sure that it is safe, putting it through several levels of trials to both ensure safety and ensure that it actually works. And he just could not comprehend that. So during the meeting, um, one of the executives had talked about how they aim to have 200,000 doses ready by August. And all of this is according to the Washington Post. Um, So Trump asked him, so that means that you'll be able to use the vaccine that early. Um, so you're talking about over the next few months. So you think you could have a vaccine? And then they answered by like, by saying, yeah, you won't have the vaccine. You'll have the vaccine go into testing. So then Trump asks, how long would that take? The CEO said it would take months and then they would head uh, start heading into phase three. And Trump was like, okay, so you're talking about within a year. Versus like, no, year and a half. Versus like, okay, well, this guy's talking about two months, right? And the person's <laughs> like, a little longer, a little longer, a couple of months, right? I mean, I like the sound of a couple of months better. I must be honest with you. And oh then it just went back and forth. Uh, he could not comprehend the fact that there is a process for it to make make sure that it's, um, <laughs> to make sure that it actually works. So later... He was asked by a reporter, and by the way, this is after they had finally set him straight that it was going to take a year to a year and a half for it to for an effective vaccine to potentially be uh, ready to disperse to the public. And they asked him about the timetable, and he said, I don't think they know what time it will be. I heard very quick numbers, a matter of months. I've heard uh, pretty much a year would be an outside number. Like, come on, man. Could you imagine they... working for this guy? Like, no, no, no. It's this fact that I'm telling you. Ah, but what I want to hear sounds better to me. So I'll just yeah. go with that and then spread that around. And you're going to be held to the deadline. You know, wouldn't it be nice if Trump's words could actually shape reality? Like... No, 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 not. <laughs> okay, maybe not. <laughs> well, may- okay, maybe in this in this specific case. But... Yeah, but oh but... my god. So so okay, we've got a buffoon in the White House. They're making a mess of things. Like 
that is nothing new for this administration, but it's really important right now. Like the fact that they don't have the administrative steps in place in order to put together an adequate response is a real problem. And critical for epidemic and pandemic responses is trust in government and institutions. If you don't trust the government and institutions, you're not going to do what the CDC tells you. You're not going to like take something seriously. You're not going to apparently ever wash your hands for a day in your life. <laughs> and so <laughs> like cr trust in institutions is absolutely critical in a time like this. But you have the literal government, the White House, like the White House spreading disinformation and downplaying the severity of this response and as a result like you know people are getting really mixed signals and ultimately are not going to be able to be as prepared as they should be um and and like to to accentuate that there was this gallup poll where they were ranking where where people were told asked to respond to a question about how confident they were in government institutions or institutions in society and People ranked their confidence in the presidency as an institution as its highest since twenty or th since two thousand nine at thirty eight percent, with either um, quite a lot of confidence or or um, a lot of confidence. Conversely, they ranked their confidence in newspapers and TV at its lowest since 2016 and 2014, respectively. So newspapers at 23% confidence and TV at 18% confidence. So we're talking about like the fact that Trump has been declaring a war on good information is seriously undermining like the ability of the American people to be prepared for this because he's undermining our trust in institutions. And that's just on top of a totally bumbled response. This could be really dramatic, not just because of the disease itself, but because of our response. All right, now time for one of our favorite segments and one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So, Michael, why do we do Tips for Good? So, as you guys know, every week we like to come to you with a fact or something you can keep in mind uh, to change your behavior or change your outlook to make the world a little bit of a better place. So, our tip for good this week is don't just vote. But I want to vote. And you should vote. Do, do, oh. do vote, but don't just vote. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Well, what else should I do? So there's a bunch of stuff you can do with a bunch of different varying amounts of investment. So, so like one of the most basic ones um, is be informed about your vote. So voting itself is not all the qualification you should have. You should go out and gather information. You should get reliable info from a number of sources, maybe subscribe to a newspaper as our fourth estate is dwindling in the 21st digital century. So, Or listen listen to a podcast that uh, regularly gives you information. Mm. Um, yeah, that's you know, a good idea. Just saying, like support your local podcaster today. Yeah. And there's a bunch <laughs> of other things you can do as well. Yeah. So you can uh, contact congressional representatives. Now, I know that that is often uh, framed as like a cop out, like, oh, they they don't actually listen. They don't actually care. But oftentimes on some of the smaller issues that don't get a whole lot of national attention, um, they actually do. It actually does make a difference. I remember a while back. 
um, there was this uh, bill that was being um, brought up before the House of Representatives called the ADA Education and Reform Act, which basically would have exacerbated the process of registering a complaint for an access violation under the ADA, and it would have been disastrous for the disabled community. And I called my congressional representative like twice a week for several months, and when the vote finally came up, she was one of 19 Republicans that voted against it. I made sure all my friends called her, I called her, and she voted against it. And I think that that had to have had some kind of, kind of impact on her. Yeah, and that's just the case where one person is trying to be active. And if we all do it, one person doesn't have to call them every week. <laughs> and we can yeah. have much less of a, a burden and still have a huge yeah. impact. And even on the, you know, even on the big national issues that a lot of people have partisanly made up their minds, um, if your uh, if your representative is a Republican and you're a Democrat and you don't want them to vote for some Republican issue, um, if they're getting a bunch of calls telling them not to do that, they might still do it, but there's definitely going to be some concern among them. There's definitely going to be some hesitation. Conversely, if you are calling a Democrat um, to tell them to vote for something that they were already planning on voting for, that kind of reassures them that, yes, my constituency is behind me and mm -hmm. I can vote for this without feeling to w without feeling like I'm going to get politically punished for it. That does make a difference, and that is important beyond voting. But even beyond electoral politics, there's grassroots organization, there's volunteer efforts uh, for, for charity, for other forms of activism, making mm -hmm. sure to uh, stay informed about local politics and to inform other people about local politics. There's so much you can do. Yeah, so volunteering for an organization sure. that like that has a concerted effort to advocate for certain causes can be really, really powerful because they do the organizing and and make sure that all the effort makes a difference. And then you can be one of the foot soldiers that volunteers a few hours a week and, and helps, you know, support the cause. Yeah, because don't forget, we live in a democratic republic. You know, the democracy part is when you go to vote. The Republic part is uh, the laws, the laws that are passed, the laws that are created, and the laws that are carried out. That is something that you can have an impact on mm -hmm. um, by being an activist. You know, you can vote. Uh, I mean, if you're in Virginia, uh, where there's an election every single year, I mean, that's great, but that's only one day out of the year. Mm -hmm. There's so many other days in the year that you can be an activist. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be, you know, that hard. Like, this sounds like a pretty big tip, but, you know, if you call your, your congressman, they're not going to debate you on the phone, right? They're going to they're gonna listen to you, record your response, and, and pass it along to your representative. And if you're out there, you know, canvassing, a lot of times um, you're canvassing just to get, like, um, people that are already likely going to vote in that direction information they need about who to vote for and how to vote rather than going in like debating with anyone. So it can be, it, it sounds like it can be intimidating, but activism starts with small things and scales when we all do something. And that is our tip for good. So our next segment focuses on something a little bit outside of the recent news, but something that is 
definitely influential in our day to day politics, and certainly um, in you know the Democratic primary um, and voting in general. And that is uh, felony disenfranchisement or felon yeah. disenfranchisement. And shout out to Taylor Bloom for suggesting this topic. I love you, brother. Yeah, that's a great topic, and it's a really important thing to be aware of because you know in a society it is easy not to listen to the voiceless and when those people can't vote their voices are even quieter and when they are literally unable to speak out or get attention their voices are quieter still um, and so in the case of people in prison or in jail or on parole in many cases we've got to pay attention to that and because of mass incarceration because of the disproportionate racial impact of and minority impact of um, our you know criminal justice system this is an issue that has deep roots affecting communities throughout the u.s so super important for us to be aware of so nathan basically what is felony disenfranchisement so felony disenfranchisement is basically uh, laws that have been passed in almost every single state except for Maine and Vermont, which in some way restrict a felon's right to vote. Now, there are different iterations of this, so let's, let's go through them. Um, first off, like I said, there is no restriction at all, which only two states have. Um, there's the restriction that people that are in prison are not allowed to vote, um, and that uh, and about 18 states have it that way. There is the restriction that if you're uh, in prison or on parole, um, that you can't vote, and uh, three states have that. Um, there's the restriction that uh, prison, parole, and probation, and uh, 17 states have that. And then there is uh, prison, parole, probation, and post-sentence, which accounts for 11 states. Now, one thing that's important to, uh, to address there is that um, for post-sentencing, in some states, it is a little bit different depending on what the actual uh, crime is. Uh, for example, there's only, only three of those states currently have laws that say um, all felons and convicts are permanently... Uh, disenfranchised, and that is Virginia, Kentucky, and Iowa. But there are some states, such as Alabama, um, in which uh, uh, in which there is a certain set of crimes um, that will cause someone to lose their right to vote even after they have been um, they have been released from prison. So, you know, sometimes when laws or actions are taken by states, it can be easy to assume that, you know, they may not have a huge impact on the, the total U.S. population. You know, like some states restrict, you know, access to abortion. And, you know, if it's one less populous state of 50 states, it's still terrible, but it's not, you know, 5% of 320 million people. But this is one of those cases that because felony disenfranchisement is common in all states in some form or another, I guess except for Maine and Vermont, it has a huge impact. So in 2012, um, this practice blocked 5.9 million otherwise eligible people from voting. That's 2.5% of 
of the eligible voting population. In 2016, it was 6.1 million people. In Florida, which is the highest, which has the highest rate, nearly 11% of otherwise eligible voters were excluded by this law, which is which is absolutely insane. So, but the crazy thing is you might you might think like, "Oh, well, I mean, what are we going to do? Put voting booths in prisons? Like, how is this practical?" Actually, only 23% of the population that is affected by these laws is still in prison. The other 77%, the vast majority, live in their communities either on parole um, or on probation, or they're totally free. They've paid their debt, if you care to use that language, and are still unable to vote. It's crazy. It, yeah. it affects just a tremendous amount. And if you're curious about, like, Oh well, well, what are the political implications? Like, I don't know. I, like, does it really matter if only two point five percent of people can't vote? According to one study, this practice likely affected the results of seven would have changed the results of seven U.S. Senate races between nineteen seventy and nineteen ninety eight, and would have almost definitely changed the outcome of the Bush v. Gore election. A national presidential election would have been would likely have come out differently if this practice were not the case. So one of the most common counter arguments when people talk about felon disenfranchisement is uh, painting this as, oh, well, you want uh, murderers and rapists to vote. You want them to have as much power as everyone else does. But in a lot of ways, that's kind of a dishonest framing of it because as Michael kind of alluded to, most of the people that are affected by this aren't necessarily people that committed violent, horrific crimes. Yeah, even if you consider it as a proportionate, you know, even if you consider it as a portion of the, the population in prisons, like most people that are in prison didn't commit a violent crime. That's a minority of the prison population. So, um, yeah, so, so ultimately this is not a question of whether murderers and rapists are going to elect the next president. Um. Another counterargument that people make is that because you violated the law, you've somehow like violated like a social contract, and having violated that, the responsibilities of that contract, you are excluded from the rights of it. So, like, basically, their argument is like, well, if you want to participate in society, you have to abide by the rules and laws and contribute to society. Otherwise, you're not eligible. Which, like, on a theoretical level could make sense. You know, I could see I could see arguments for that. Though that's not really how our system of laws is set up. Like the social contract is a nice theoretical mechanism to understand the relationship in a democratic republic. Um but but we don't like create laws in order to support a social contract conception. Um except sometimes with respect to criminal justice. We tend to have a very retributivist criminal justice system, so where we're trying to rebalance the scales of justice um, rather than a rehabilitative one where we're trying to get people back into society as productive members as fast as possible. This is seen as just another way that you punish someone. You take away their freedom and you also take away their civil rights. Yeah. And considering just how deeply affected people in prison are um, by those we elect, I think that it's fair to say that they should have a say in that. Now, let's sort of talk about the most extreme proposal 
in um, dismantling felon disenfranchisement and talk about kind of where we stand on that and how we feel about that. So as it stands, the most uh, extreme uh, uh, rebuttal to felon disenfranchisement laws um, has been something that Bernie Sanders has been arguing, which is not only should people be able to vote after, uh, after they have served their time in prison, they should be able to vote while they're in prison. And not only should they be able to vote while they're in prison, there should be no exceptions. So there should be nobody who loses any voting rights while they're in prison, while they're out of prison. Um, as it stands, there are only two states that have no restrictions so far. So this has been criticized by a lot of people who kind of made the point that I made earlier, which is, um, oh, so you're saying that like, people that are in prison for like terrorism or for treason or for rape or for murder that they should be able to vote. And his counter argument was kind of a slippery slope argument, which is you take, uh, you take rights away from this group. Eventually you're going to be taking rights away from this group, which I don't know if I buy that argument. What do you think, Michael? Yeah, I, I think that's not a particularly good argument, nor is it, I think probably the most compelling argument though. It might be, the easiest to state <laughs> so like yeah. i mean slippery slope is a logical fallacy yeah so it is a logical fallacy and you know and so and again like there's nothing about granting or preventing voting rights from say a group of murderers that would require that we then prevent you know shoplifters from voting there's like no there's no reason why that slippery slope would actually exist um but it seems but so so like that is a pretty weak response but it tends to be a pretty like in like compelling response people like people get really scared about slippery slopes it's really funny um yeah. but it's it's but ultimately there are better arguments like you know what on earth would truly connect someone's ability to influence or or participate in an election to their status as a criminal or not like aside i guess aside from like a social contract view um it seems like some of the people who should be who are most affected by our criminal justice laws which is a, a large swath of laws in the united states are people that have actually experienced them and so like it would it doesn't surprise me that we have really strong law and order candidates all the time uh, people that might be interested in more lenient laws are in prison <laughs> and they can't vote and so like it's it's like in if you're trying to create a representative democracy fundamentally you can't exclude people um, as a whole, as a whole group, right? You can't. If you took everybody that had one thing in common and excluded them, you would get a systemically biased system. And right now, we have a, a system that is systemically biased against people that, you know, are in prison and might yeah. be interested in in maybe more lenient sentencing, which is not on its face a preposterous thing, except for people take an ad hominem approach and say. You know, well, you just want more lenient sentencing so you can do more crime and get away with it, which is just not true. Yeah. Uh, one one other point I would make about this is we've talked about on the pod um, about kind of uh, the point of legislation 
So the point of legislation is to fix a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So the only reason why you should ever propose a piece of legislation is if there is a major problem that needs fixing. So what that means is that whenever you are asking yourself if a law should be changed, one question you should ask yourself is, would I have the same position if that weren't already the law? So one thing I would ask myself is, um, because you know, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I'm not sure. Uh, I think that you know it might make sense to. I absolutely do think that most people who are in prison um, should be allowed to vote even while they're serving their time. I do agree with that. Um, but I don't know how important it is to make sure that uh, murderers and rapists are also able to vote. But at the same time, I would ask myself, okay, what if? They could vote right now, and there was a law being brought up saying that they couldn't vote. Would I have the same position? And honestly, I'm not sure if I would, because, you know, the, the rapist and the murderer voting block is not immensely huge. And yeah. they are already, if they're in prison, they're already being punished for what they did, and they're being removed from society to be a, uh, from being a direct threat. And I just don't think that you're going to get a big enough coalition of murderers and rapists to really make a lot of, uh, to really be a major electoral um, driver. Yeah. Yeah. And, and allowing p these people to be advocates for themselves can make could make a huge difference a huge portion of the u.s prison population a huge contributor to mass incarceration is the war on drugs and the and these people have been at the mercy of advocacy groups trying to gain momentum trying to gain attention rather than being able to represent themselves or participate in a process which there's no there's no like true reason except for an emotional appeals at least it seems to me that like these people should necessarily be excluded the equation like aren't aren't criminals evil people and shouldn't they not be able to influence our society is the conclusion that we're meant to draw and i mean personally i i am more and more skeptical of retributivist systems of social justice and criminal justice um now that's a longer conversation that we may have to get into at a later date but like yeah the idea agree, the idea that we should like take these people and cast them out of every aspect of our society because they tripped a felony bar rather than some other you know social norm bar seems it does not seem to follow to me that seems like a very strange thing so that all that discussion is a little bit abstract and theoretical. I mean, we were literally talking about social contract theory and things like that. So very abstract and theoretical. But <laughs> but the implied assumption is that these laws are applied fairly. So like the implied assumption of whether a disenfranchisement law is okay is that it affects society similarly so we're not taking one group of people and unjustly preventing them from influencing the political process but that is not a good assumption in this case as you might have concluded already one in 13 potentially eligible black voters can't vote because of felony disenfranchisement laws versus one in 56 non-black potentially eligible voters that are affected by these laws. So it's extremely disproportionate impact on the black community. 
in Florida, Kentucky, and Tennessee, one in, fl- in five black adults is prevented from voting because of this practice. So 20% of the black adult population is disenfranchised. And um, in Virginia, you know, we mentioned earlier that Virginia was one of the states where they basically say all people with felony convictions are permanently disenfranchised. However, in Virginia, the governor actually, uh, on a monthly basis, gives people that have served their time the right to vote back individually. And um, that means that effectively, in Virginia, after people have served their time, they no longer uh, they no longer have lost the right to vote. So that is one of the reasons why you have um, these races for governor, uh, why these races for governor are very important, because governors have the right to do that. Um, he also, uh, Michael also mentioned Kentucky. I believe that the current Democratic governor of Kentucky, uh, the recently elected one, is also planning on doing that. Um, so governor's races are extremely important in that regard. Yeah. And as the prison populations continue to increase, you know, we've seen a five-fold increase in prison population in the last 40 years among all people. Among women, we're seeing, we saw a seven-fold increase over the same period. So, like, this practice is disproportionately affecting people of color and also women whose prison population is increasing. Like, this problem is only going to get worse unless we take action to correct it. Um, so, and, and, you know, this started in its roots as, like, a pretty common practice in like when America was founded in like the colonial era, it was not uncommon for people's civil rights to be taken away along with their freedom. But then, you know, after the Civil War and after the 15th Amendment, which prohibited race-based exclusions from voting, this became a key lever for disenfranchising people of color. And it still is. So ultimately, like, even if this was just in a just society, I can't see how it could be just when it's when incarceration itself is so um, is so disproportionately administered. So where do Michael and I stand on this issue? Like, how far would we go? So, Michael, would you say that it's appropriate to give um, everybody the right to vote while they're in prison, regardless of their crime? Yes, that is definitely where I stand. Okay. So I would say that I would passionately argue for restoring the rights of um, restoring the rights of people in prison to vote. But if there was a law that had an exception that said, well, unless you have committed murder or rape, um, that's not the hill I would die on. Well, same. Like, yeah, would, definitely. Like, <laughs> I'm not going like, to die if, for the murders and the rapists. We'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's not the hill that I would die on. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think that it is a bad thing uh, if we did have no exceptions. Um, but even with those exceptions, we should fight like hell to make sure that people in prison are able to vote. And ultimately, the the root problem that makes this an issue of like societal justice rather than more of a nuanced issue about criminal justice is 
the disproportionate impact of mass incarceration. So that's the root problem that we should be fighting to solve. And now time for our favorite segment, Asshat of the Week. So, Nathan, who's our asshat this week? Well, Michael, we have a rather fun one. Our asshat is one Hillary Rosen. Who the heck is that? So she is a Democratic strategist who is a surrogate for the Biden campaign, and she was on uh, Chris Cuomo uh, debating Nina Turner, who is a surrogate for the Bernie campaign. And... um, she apparently had some problems with the uh, the fact that Nina Turner, who, by the way, is a black woman, um, was invoking Martin Luther King for her criticisms of Joe Biden. Yeah. Yeah. So so a little bit of background and context on this. They were basically discussing, you know, Biden versus Bernie and their their history and all that all that stuff. And uh, Nina Turner um, referenced letter from Birmingham jail, Birmingham jail. Um, an MLK, famous MLK letter. Um, if you haven't read it, go go pause the episode and go read it right now. It is it is amazing. But but what she was calling out was that in that letter, he, um, he specifically calls out the danger of quiet white moderates, like you know people that won't stand up along with people of color for their rights, and. Hillary Rosen, you know, was saying that, oh, no, no, MLK did not say white moderates. He said silent white moderates. And, you know, Joe Biden is anything but silent about about these issues. And she basically was like she basically told Nina Turner, again, a black woman, that she was totally wrong in her interpretation of MLK. And how dare she use MLK to attack Joe Biden? As if that's not a bad enough case of white splaining when she literally said, quote, that's actually not what Martin Luther King said. Yeah, yeah, please, white woman, tell this black woman exactly uh, how to use Martin Luther King. Um, as if that's not bad enough. Later, um, when Nina Turner kind of clarified it and explained, no, 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 what she was, what Martin Luther King was saying was that um, the white moderate is the person who cares more about order than justice. Mm-hmm. Rosen then rebutted that by saying, don't use Martin Luther King against Joe Biden. You don't have that standing. Ugh. To which uh, Nina Turner responded by saying, don't tell me what kind of standing that I have as a black woman in America. How dare you? And, and so when that's... I saw that, I was like, I, I, I had to pause for a second. And I was like, am I am I seriously watching this? Is this happening? And, and and then like, like that's that is absolutely nuts. That is like I can't believe anybody would do that. Say that. Yeah. Especially on like live TV. It's like absolutely crazy. But it only went downhill from there. Yeah, because she knew she needed to apologize, but her apology had some it was poorly worded. She said she tweeted out, quote, on airs Thursday. I said my colleague Nina Turner didn't have standing to use MLK Jr. That was wrong. I am sorry for saying those words. Please, no need to defend me and attack angry black women. They have standing. I always need to listen more than I talk. We rise together. Oh, so, uh, Michael, (laughs) 
Why was why was that a tone deaf response? Oh my god! So start off with evoking <laughs> uh, the stereotype of angry black women, reducing like an a intelligent, well versed, accomplished strategist to a, a a racist stereotype, and then we rise together. Yeah, we're on the same side. Yeah, you, you I can totally identify with everything you've been through, uh, and that's yeah. when the internet blew up about it. Yeah. And then she actually had to take down that tweet. The only reason why we uh, see it is because of the magic of screenshots. Um, And she had to do another apology where she said, quote, I unequivocally know that I disrespected her and I wanted to make it right. Uh, Telling disgusting white folks to stop. Wow, did that tweet go wrong? I am so sorry. Yes. Yes, it did go that. Yes, it did go wrong. Just like stop (laughs) digging. Oh, my God. (laughs) All right. So it seems that she knows that she screwed up and she's at least trying to apologize for it. (laughs) Yeah. One of her one of her aides or staffers or whatever was like, "Okay, okay, you have to say these things. You are not you're not prepared. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, Um, congratulations to Hillary Rosen for being our. Asshat of the week. So for our third segment, you know, we've talked a lot about Bernie on this show. We've talked about the other candidates um, a fair amount, but often through the lens of debate. So given that this primary race is now really between um, Bernie and Biden, we wanted to dig deeper on who Joe Biden is, what his background is, so that you can make a more informed decision or at least feel more confident in your decision going forward. And as always, in the interest of full disclosure, um, Michael and I did both vote for Bernie Sanders. So we do, I know I definitely have a major bias um, towards him as being a better candidate than Joe Biden, um, but I will do my best to make sure that I'm presenting this information in as objective a way as possible while still inserting my opinions after I have presented the facts. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I, and I would echo that sentiment as well. Um, yeah, so let's let's dive into it. So you guys know who Joe Biden is. <laughs> uh, former vice president, you know, became uh, elected in like the 1970s, you know, father had some terrible tragedies throughout his life, um, and has been a loyal member of the Democratic Party for, you know, five decades, six decades at this point. So it's a little bit of background. Um, So let's talk a little bit about his legislative record, Uh, namely some of the things that have been brought up in the debate. So I want to start by talking about the crime bill. So when people mention the crime bill, Uh, when criticizing Joe Biden. What they're talking about is the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. So at the time, Joe Biden was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he wrote large portions of this bill, and he is was the main driver of it throughout the entire legislative process. Now, one thing that's important to mention, some of the good things that came from this bill, um, the Violence Against Women Act was included in this bill. And if you're someone that uh, agrees with the banning of assault weapons, I don't, but if you are someone that does, then that was also included in this. So uh, for the traditional Democrat, you might consider that to be a good thing. 
Um, now, some of the bad things that this involved, um, it did involve a lot of harsher sentences for uh, crimes that really should not have as harsh sentences. Um, for example, it made um, it exacerbated the war on drugs and it created the mandatory minimum sentencing laws that have been adopted by several states um, in much stronger iterations. Now, when we're talking about mandatory minimum sentencing laws, we're talking about laws that tell judges that if a person is convicted of a certain crime, you have to sentence them. Uh, you cannot sentence them lower than this sentence. So sometimes that takes the iteration of three strikes laws. There are, uh, um, in some states, there are three strikes laws for drug offenses where if a person is caught with drugs three times, then they can be sentenced to life without parole, which is kind of messed up. Um, and one thing that is important to note, Joe Biden is often criticized for this bill, and in many ways that is warranted. He did at the time give lots of speeches in which he specifically um, he, he made uh, tough on crime arguments in which he said, look, I don't care if the reason why people commit crimes is because they grew up in poverty. I care about getting them off the street which I think is kind of problematic language because you're not addressing the social barriers that often uh, push people to um, to turn to a life of crime. Um, but at the same time, that was a major sentiment back then because there was a major rise in violent crime that had been happening over the last few years leading up to the crime bill. But one thing that's important to also note to, to you know, in his favor is that there were times during the process in which he did seem to be aware that certain iterations and certain uh, parts of the crime bill could have unforeseen consequences. For example, um, there is a provision, the provision about the mandatory minimum sentencing laws uh, specified violent crimes. And he had concerned about that wording because he was concerned that that could be used to describe things like, you know, say a person gets into a fistfight. You know, if a person gets into a fistfight three times, if you have uh, and you define that as a violent crime, um, then under a three strikes law, they could be sentenced to life without parole. And that was not the point of the crime bill. And he seemed to be passively aware about that. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I do want to iterate that I don't necessarily I don't think that Joe Biden is a bad guy. I don't think that he is malicious, but. I do think that he he allowed himself to be pushed into advocating for a lot of reforms that ended up doing more harm than good because that was the sentiment at the time, and he was being pushed to do that politically at the time. Yeah, it seems to be a theme throughout Joe Biden's career, which is long. It's almost 40 years long at this point in, in politics, um, that he was very in tune with the legislative priorities and the Demo and the policies of the Democratic Party in each time. And the fact that some of those things didn't age well is not necessarily his fault. It's pretty much a, it can be seen as somewhat of a byproduct of a really long career. Um, and maybe good for him to be, you know, in step with, with things at the time. But you worry about whether, you know, he should have had a more principled stance on some of this stuff. 
you know, and let's also not forget that earlier in his career, he did um, oppose uh, the federal government getting involved in uh, the use of busing in order to desegregate schools, yeah. which, I mean, you know, I, there's no other way to put it. That's that's problematic. That's bad. Yeah. And um, now, obviously, he doesn't have that stance anymore. Obviously, he has evolved. And I'm. Um, but I remember when we watched the the first debate when he defended that position I, he really just needed to be like look it was it was the wrong call i'm sorry i shouldn't have done it mm. i've changed yeah and, and instead he was defending it and that that was a problem and you also see that with regard to like lgbt and gay rights as well, because he voted for the Defense of Marriage Act, which basically made it so that if a state did not recognize uh, marriage equality, then they would not have to recognize a gay married couple that got married in a state where it was legal. Um, now, some people might argue that that prevented worse legislation from happening, um, and maybe there is an argument to that, but it definitely was an anti-LGBTQ bill. But, but again, he did evolve on that. Yeah, exactly. Again, when when LGBTQ and gay rights gained momentum, when um, Obergefell v. Hodges happened, which, you know, um, pro, like was a Supreme Court case that provided for the protection of um, marriage for uh, gay people, he was... You know, on the front lines. Um, yeah, you yeah. know, going for and, those. And rights, let's so. also not let's also not forget about the fact that he's kind of the reason why Obama came out in favor of marriage equality mm -hmm. because he, during some event on a whim he was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I support it." And then Obama was like, "Oh crap, we weren't planning on doing that yet, but okay, fine, I guess we're doing it now." Yeah. Um, and you know what? That really helped. I, that really helped. <laughs> you know, I, I've always respected Biden for that. I, I remember when that happened. and I remember being like, you know what? I, I'm I'm glad that I'm glad Biden's in the White House. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. There's definitely uh, there's definitely a lot of mixed stuff. Another important thing that I want to bring up is the Iraq war. Because this is something that Bernie Sanders keeps bringing up over and over again. He keeps hammering Joe Biden over and over again on his uh, support and vote for the Iraq war. So, as is often the case, the reality is more complicated than the, uh, the one-minute talking point that you hear in debates. In some ways, um, when you do a deeper dive, you find that uh, Joe Biden's position on the Iraq war was more problematic, and in some ways it was less problematic. Hmm. So let's actually uh, so let's actually take a look at um, the Iraq war and um, everything leading up to it and what Biden did uh, in favor of the war and what he did eventually against it and what he was saying at the time and what he later said. So when people talk about the fact that Joe Biden voted for the Iraq war, what they're talking about is a resolution that authorized the use of military forces against Iraq. Um, now, this happened uh, in the Democratic-controlled Senate, in which uh, Joe Biden was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So 
he was very close to a lot of um, the uh, a lot of what the intelligence community was saying, specifically what uh, Dick Cheney was saying, Colin Powell was saying, and um, and he was right there in the forefront when the arguments were being made. And when I say arguments, I mean lies because um, the the narrative of weapons of mass destruction was being put forth by um, the Bush administration over and over again. And as we definitely know, that turned out to be false. So that vote happened in um, in 2002. At the time, one of the arguments that Joe Biden made, he said uh, during an, a hearing in August, he said in uh, August 2002, he said, these weapons must be dislodged from Saddam Hussein or Saddam Hussein must be dislodged from power. Hmm. Now, he said, uh, he also said, in my judgment, President Bush is right to be concerned about Saddam Hussein's relentless pursuit of weapons of mass destruction and the possibility that he may use them or share them with terrorists. So remember that for later. You know, there he is clearly saying that he does believe the Bush administration. He does believe that there are weapons of mass destruction um, in Iraq. He's clearly saying that. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I do want to bring up, a place where he actually... Um, he actually did attempt to uh, put in an amendment which would limit the scope of um, of the military engagement with Iraq to focus on weapons of mass destruction. It ended up getting defeated by um, the House Minority Leader at the time. And in the end, he did end up blinking and basically uh, allowing the final version of it and voting for the final version of it that said that I'm... Um, the Bush administration basically had all the power to wage war with Iraq. Now, that vote happened in uh, 2002. Not too long after that, there was a report from the United Nations. So um, 1,625 U.N. and U.S. investigators, inspectors, uh, spent two years searching um, 1,700 sites uh, in Iraq to check for weapons of mass destruction. And they concluded that there were no weapons of mass destruction. And this report came out in February of 2003. And then the Bush administration officially started the Iraq war, despite the fact that you had these UN investigators coming over and saying, hey, there are no weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. They started the war in March of 2003. Now, if we were to go by the narrative that Biden is trying to sell us right now, which is basically that um, he was lied to and he believed them um, and he had no reason not to believe them at the time, then you would have to say that after that UN's um, report came out, he would have had to have changed his view. But the problem is he didn't change his view yet. In fact, um, even after the war had already started, he had complained about the fact that the war was being underfunded. Hmm. And then the most telling thing, which I think hits the final nail in the coffin as to why this is a legitimate criticism that we do need to address and we do need to be prepared for, is something that he said at an event um, at the Council of Foreign Relations in October of 2004, where he said, quote, I never believed they had weapons of mass destruction. Hmm. Now, remember, earlier we talked about the fact that 
He said that the Bush administration is right to be concerned about weapons of mass destruction. He was trying to sell that narrative to the American people. And then in 2004, he claimed that he never believed that they had weapons of mass destruction. So either he was lying in um, he was lying in 2002 or he was lying in 2004. But that is a really problematic record that needs to be addressed. It is a legitimate criticism that we need to that we need to bring up. Even if he is our nominee, especially if he is our nominee, mm-hmm. because you know Donald Trump's going to hit him with that. Yeah. Yeah. Donald Trump will hit him with a bunch of illegitimate stuff. And having a legitimate chink in the armor that he could exploit could potentially serve to legitimize all of the rest of the illegitimate criticisms. You know, like if, you know, you know, the way that you do it is you like, accuse him of a bunch of random stuff and then you have your fact checkers go and look into the Iraq stuff and then all of a sudden it all looks like it's just going to float by together yeah I totally agree he needs a really strong answer for this criticism because it's not going away and the fact of the matter is there is absolutely a strong counterpoint that he can make which is the fact that during the Obama administration Obama had basically put him in charge of ending the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. Which he has mentioned in debates. Yeah. So I think that is also important context because like even, even juxtaposing that with, uh, you know, what Bernie Sanders says, the criticisms that Bernie Sanders has, um, Bernie Sanders voted against the Iraq war. Um, and he led the opposition, uh, against that war. But Biden did have a pretty heavy hand in um, the fight against it under the Obama administration. And I think that it's, I think that that's also fair to bring up as uh, a positive for Joe Biden. Yeah, I'd agree. I think that makes a lot of sense. So ultimately what we discussed is, you know, some of the controversial stuff in, in Biden's record. Um, And ultimately like, some of it can be ch- chalked up to having a really long career where, you know, you're trying to remain in line with your larger party. You're trying to remain in line with your voters. And t- to some degree, that might be a liability for a candidate who is a long, a lifelong politician, right? Like for people that are truly against establishment candidates, for people that are truly trying to get an outsider who doesn't have a, a checkered background or of legislative history, you know, they might see that as a turnoff. But at this point, we have we have two legis- um, politicians that have, have been politicians for a really long time. Now, I would argue that Bernie's record is less checkered um, by, by far. And Bernie is also, like, much more of an outsider than Joe Biden. I mean, he's only recently, like, been on Democratic tickets instead of independent tickets. <laughs> But, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, but like, you know, lifelong politicians, both of them. So ultimately, you know, Joe Biden is not a bad guy. He's, you know, been working, trying to work on the right stuff for a long time. He's made some weird choices and some of his votes really haven't aged well. Um, but ultimately, like our, you know, certainly for me, my reason for going for Bernie is because I'm a, I appreciate his progressive policies i think they're the right direction and joe biden's policies just aren't borne out in the same um kind of way as 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 
Bernie's. They're not as progressive. They don't push the envelope as far. Um, they mostly focus on trying to undo all the harm that, that Trump has done, which is a good start, but I don't think gets us there. The biggest difference between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders for me is that historically, Bernie Sanders is an activist. You know, if mm -hmm. he doesn't let poll numbers prevent him from advocating for things that he believes in, if he thinks that there is a policy that is important, he advocates for it until a majority of people support it. For Joe Biden, he kind of just goes with the flow, goes with the trends. And it doesn't mean that he would make a bad president. It just means that he wouldn't really push the envelope that much as president. Now, what that does mean is that if Joe Biden does end up being the president, we need to do that. We need to be the ones that are pushing the conversation into a more progressive direction. And in essence, force his hand to, uh, to pass more progressive policies. Now, a Republican is never going to do that. But a Democrat who does follow trends, maybe they would. And that means that, and that goes to our tip for good, which is don't just vote, be an activist. So before we end our podcast with some highlights, we do have a very exciting announcement. We have an official winner of the D-Bag Award, also known as the Dershowitz Bag Award. Michael, after all of the votes that came in, who is the winner? So the winner... Um, yeah, as a reminder, it was, uh, between a billionaire, Ted Cruz and Chris Matthews, who has since retired over comments, not too distant from the ones we were talking about. And, uh, the winner is Ted Cruz. Oh, ah, yeah. Who could have seen that coming? Seriously. <laughs> one of the more hated men in America. Um, <laughs> so basically Ted Cruz came out and said he was horrified by this bill that was introduced, um, in a state legislature, um, calling for men above 50 to get vasectomies and saying that like, how could any government, you know, restrict someone's body? Da, da, da. <laughs> yep making a hilarious self-own and an honorary recipient of the D-Bag Award. So congratulations, Ted Cruz. You're our first winner. Let's do highlights. All right, Nathan, what was your highlight this week? Well, my highlight has been being on spring break. Um, I, uh, I have a lot of things that I'm going to have to do once I get back from spring break, but right now I've been enjoying a nice little vacation of not really doing much. That sounds what about awesome. you, Michael? What, what is your highlight? I miss spring break. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for me, uh, it was that I got to go to my first NBA game um, last night. So it was the Miami Heat versus the Washington Wizards. Um, and the Heat took it away in the end. And it was a super fun game. I was there with one of my closest friends, Lucas, um, and, and my new friend, John. And it was super fun. It was it was a really exciting game. I'm not a huge sports guy, so it was so it was really cool to get out there and be able to to cheer for the Heat. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. That's our episode, and uh, hope you listen to us next week. <laughs> <laughs>